This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back to 15-Minute History. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. On October 30th, 1918, the Ottoman Empire signed a treaty of capitulation to the Allied powers aboard the HMS Agamemnon, a British battleship docked in Mudros Harbor on the Aegean island of Lemnos. Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire were the first of the Central Powers to formally end their participation in World War I. Five days later, the Austro-Hungarian Empire followed suit, and finally the guns fell silent with the capitulation of Germany on November 11th. World War I dramatically changed the face of Europe and the Middle East. The war had caused millions of deaths, and millions more were displaced. Two great multinational empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, were dissolved into new nation-states, while Russia descended into a chaotic revolution. In this first of two roundtables on the legacy of World War I, I am joined by Mary Newberger, Professor of History and Director of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies, and Yoav de Capua, Professor of Modern Arab History, to discuss the war's impact on Southeastern Europe and the Middle East. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So let's start by discussing the situation at the end of the war when Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire surrendered to the Allies. There's a lot of human suffering going on. Indeed. <laughs> Actually, in Bulgaria, for example, it was really on the verge of mass starvation. There were riots in the cities, mostly carried out by women. Um, on the front, there was also starvation. Men were still mostly at the front. Um, and so it was basically a revolutionary situation which caused this capitulation. Um, there were soldiers mutinying. Um, there was a lot of influence. The left was actually organizing and looking to Russia um, for inspiration, and many Bulgarian communists were going back and forth um, to Petrograd and even to Ukraine later as the civil war kind of took off. Um, but really across the region, um, there was not just mass starvation, but a lot of people have di had died from disease. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, mass war dead really... I mean, people see these numbers as pretty small in the Balkans, but actually per percentage of the population, really quite large numbers of both civilian and military casualties. So, yeah, it was chaos that became political, that kind of created a vacuum. Um, and, you know, it took a long time to sort of resolve all that was going on there. But really, the war effort collapsed because of these political concerns. And it wasn't just the sort of communist left. It was also in Bulgaria, but also elsewhere in the region, the agrarian left. So it was really also a peasant, an issue of peasant rebellion throughout the region. Similarly, in the, in the Arab East, um, the level of destruction is immense. Uh, we have to remember that World War I was an agrarian war in the sense that you have hundreds of thousands of animals passing through. They need to eat, they need to drink, uh, as well as the soldiers themselves. Uh, these animals did not come from the UK, even though they belong to the British, you know, to the British. They come from Egypt, they come from the countryside, in uh, wherever places the British were passing through. And the result is a major destruction of the environmental, agrarian um, sort of countryside. 
in ways that almost immediately uh, translate to a humanitarian crisis. Uh, and the number of civilian dead in the Ottoman Empire is one of the highest, if not the highest, in World War I. Um, add to this political um, breakdown of the empire and the fact that minorities have been um, kind of set against each other due to the process of modernization and kind of imperialism, you get um, uh, significant um, levels of political upheaval, for example, with the uh, Armenian genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at the region at 1920, the level of destruction of, uh, of population actually dislocated is so immense that on one way, you, you know, and people at the time mourned the destruction. On the other hand, it created um, uh, almost like the conditions for the rise of the nation state. Turkey rises out of total destructions of Anatolia. Um, and the destruction in the rest of the Arab East allows uh, imperial power to divide the regions and create a new Middle East um, out of unilaterally, without talking to anybody actually, besides themselves. Uh, and that's the Middle East we inherited. Right. So uh, there's quite a lot that happens in the course of a few years that cast a very long shadow over um, all the way to the present, century forward. Right. So, yeah, we, we, we have, as you mentioned, the, the creation of new nation states, the Ottoman Empire is dissolved, disbanded, Turkey replaces it, we have these new countries. We also have new countries in the Balkans, or in a lot of new borders for countries that already existed out of the fact that Austria-Hungary also breaks up. Um, and who drew those, those borders? Right. So, <laughs> um, Well, actually, in southeastern Europe, the only really wholly new country was Yugoslavia. And it wasn't called Yugoslavia right away. It was called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. So Bulgaria already existed. Um, Albania even um, had been formed as a result of the Balkan Wars. So that's another thing I wanted to mention is in the region, actually, war had been going on since 1912 with some breaks. Yes, my grandmother never let me forget I had a great uncle who died fighting in one of them. So (laughs) memories run very long. That's right. (laughs) Um, But even when these states weren't new, the borders were different. And so so even for Yugoslavia, let's say, you could look at it as an expanded Serbia. So Serbia already existed as a state. But now you have this massive Yugoslavia, which is a new state, or this kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. Um, in which you have to integrate all these different people who speak different languages, different religions, who have different systems of law, who have different transportation systems that are oriented to different capital cities. You have to integrate all that into one state. So even those states that seem to gain, in a sense, territory um, were hurt in many ways by this new, these new configurations, which were so unwieldy. The other example is Romania. Romania already existed as well. Um, I mean, the Ottoman Empire in southeastern Europe had been breaking down in the course of the 19th century. So we already had an independent Romania since 1878. We had an autonomous Romania since 1864. But now the new Romania includes Transylvania. It also includes Bessarabia, which they took from Russia. So you have this massive new Romania with all these new populations in it, which are not, not Romanian. Um, and suddenly Romania itself, like this new Yugoslavia, are multinational states, actually, Um, in part because there wasn't really a way to create actual 
nation states, arguably, out of this region because it was so mixed. Mm -hmm. um, it would have been impossible to draw borders, but the borders were drawn by the victors, of course, of World War I, not by locals. There were plenty of locals who um, lobbied for, for, for Yugoslavia to be formed, for example, or for Romania to get Transylvania, that kind of thing. But but really, these these borders were drawn by, I mean, under the influence of Woodrow Wilson with this idea of national self-determination, which mm -hmm. couldn't really be applied very well in that region. Right. Um, and so the borders came really from the outside, which, you know, but it, the national self-determination wasn't the only consideration. The other was that the winners of and people who were fighting on the winning side would be rewarded and losers would be punished. And so in the Balkans, Bulgaria was on the losing side and it was in its own mind at least punished. Um, it didn't really lose much territory, but it lost all the territories it had occupied during the war. And so this is a national catastrophe for Bulgaria. Hungary was the same way. Hungary lost territories to Romania and this new Yugoslav state. So in, there was this kind of shadow of the winners and losers, which, of course, then feeds into later discontent um, when these same countries jump on the bandwagon of the Axis in World War II, the losing side. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm also thinking here of probably the most extreme example, which was the intended partition of Turkey, according to the Treaty of Sev which uh, set the terms, the, which led to a three-year war with Greece, which ended in 1922 and 23 with the governments of Greece and Turkey deciding that the way they were going to split their differences was literally that they were going to exchange populations. So Christians who lived in Turkey outside of certain areas were designated Greeks. People who lived in Greece who were Muslims who lived outside of, uh, of, of certain areas were de de designated Turks. And you had two and a quarter million people shipped off to the other side, even though they had no family connections or language. And in order to make these nations homogenous and, and to end this multi-ethnic split. Um, and uh, so the artificiality of, of these borders is one thing, but now you have to determine as a nation who you are, which I know uh, has been a recurring theme uh, in the Arab states. Um, this idea of what does it mean to be there hadn't been Arab states they'd been under Ottoman occupation since the 1600s well it wasn't an, an Ottoman occupation <laughs> I mean okay, for yes. them <laughs> that was the cosmology of Islam that there is a spiritual center just like you know the Vatican and the Pope for Catholics in a way and that this institution uh, provided an anchoring for their identity. And underneath this structure, which has you know, the political structures and the institutions of the Ottoman Empire, they can run uh, something which is uh, pretty much uh, um, an open code community. Uh, and that uh, relates also to all the other communities. So various kinds of Christians and Druze and Jews and Alawites and Muslims of that kind or another, Sunnis or Shis, can actually coexist. There's no other word, um, you know, under, the, under this imperial uh, structure. Now, when the Ottoman Empire collapses, uh, and it, it's not that it collapsed just in the course of the war, it's been collapsing slowly 
and it's being replaced slowly, especially in the Arab East since the 1860s with uh, the cultural movement of the Nahda, which is the modernization of, of Arab culture. Um, and it's uh, in basically introduction into political modernity. So they begin to craft new categories of what does it mean to be an Arab in the modern world. Part of it, you know, is part of, the, of being in the global economy, exporting raw materials like cotton in return for, uh, um, for cash. Uh, but they also understand not only the economy and the numbers, they also understand the, the categories of political being, constitutions, rights, uh, of various kinds of rights. Uh, and these circulate widely in, in, a, in a journalistic scene that explodes really talking about hundreds of magazines and journals uh, in, a, in a territory in which more than 19% are illiterate. But these elites, those who can read and participate in it, do pick up the project of the nation state from the late 19th century. So when the Ottoman Empire collapses, they're actually ready to take, to take off in, 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 in a certain sense, except the French and the British are there. Mm-hmm. And what is unique, the interaction between the two forces is unique because... The British and the French actually decide uh, secretly how to divide the region, but they also promise, especially the British, parts of it to opposing sides, part to the Zionist, part to, to a, a distinctive Arabic, Arab project coming out of the Arab Peninsula. And these conflicting promises, um, also with the expectation that these elites are going to create nation, you know, national entities, um, create a conflict that's being resolved. It's not, first of all, it's not being resolved. It's being uh, rearranged uh, during the 20s uh, only. So it's been uh, about, a, took about a, a decade for the states to emerge. Egypt got its uh, uh, semi-independence uh, in 1923. Iraq really got it in, its independence in 1932, but all of them are still under... Uh, various Anglo-Egyptian, Anglo-Iraqi treaties that bind them diplomatically, economically, militarily, and uh, and otherwise. So these are also conditioned independence, conditioned national liberation um, that basically, in the long run, uh, discredited the project of the democratic Arab nation-state and replaced it with military uh, juntas, military officers that took over. That's happened all over the Arab East mm-hmm. uh, already in the 50s. And that's the legacy, a part of the legacy of the Arab nation states um, in this period. One of the other things that, that happens uh, as a result of the end of the war is uh, as the Ottoman Empire is disbanded, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire also bears the title of Caliph of Islam. Um, the position is abolished in 1924 and never replaced, um, which some people have even suggested has a lasting legacy. But what is what is the immediate impact of of this uh, abolition of the spiritual head of the Sunni world? Well, so for the Balkans, it's really kind of interesting because um, – well, let me just take Bulgaria. I mean it kind of depends on which country you're talking about. But for Bulgaria – No, give a one-size-fits-all answer, <laughs> please. No. Um, well, there was a, a large degree of accommodation within the Balkan states of their Muslim populations. And one of the interesting things about just let's take Bulgaria is that Turks that were more modernizing, so Kamalist Turks, mm-hmm. were actually followed by the police – 
They were seen as suspicious. They were called communists. Um, and they were seen as kind of enemies of the state. Whereas, and they did use these terms, the old Turks within Bulgaria were actually um, embraced by the state. They were given all kinds of autonomy for their communities. And by autonomy, I mean they, were, they still had their own Islamic courts in Bulgaria. Oh. They were still using Arabic script in Bulgaria. Women were still allowed to veil. All these kind of things were still going on in Bulgaria. And in fact, there was at least some migration of Turks from New Turkey to Bulgaria because they wanted to live within this kind of still Islamic community. Obviously, it wasn't a caliphate, but there was a way in which they were able to continue their way of life, um, at least on this kind of small scale within Bulgaria. So this continued throughout the whole interwar period. The same kind of accommodation you can definitely see for Muslims within the former Yugoslavia. Although there, I think it was a little more complicated because you had a much larger Muslim community, for example, in Bosnia. And right. so modernizing, Bosnian Muslims were allowed to do, you know, they were actually a vibrant political party who participated in the parliament. And so they weren't sort of followed or, you know, seen as suspect in the same kind of way. But you also had con traditional Islam still thriving within Yugoslavia. So there was a really kind of a complicated, I would say, landscape of Islam that continued in the Balkans in this period. I don't know how that compares to what's going on in the Middle East. But. Right. So when the caliphate is abolished, it seems that uh, for the most part, the intellectual elites were not ready for that. The project of the nation states is, uh, for lack of a better word, a secular project. Mm -hmm. And once the caliphate collapses, it's uh, translated almost immediately into a huge emotional shock. It's an ontological shock. Because for better or for worse, even if the sultan is not there in, you know, in power, it is there in name. And it, it still upholds the, um, sort of the identitarian unity of Muslims basically all over the world. It's a shock not only in the Middle East, in India and in other places. There are the Khalifat movement. There are other movements that are, are trying almost like to position themselves competitively. Who is going to be the new caliph? Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that no caliph is emerging. So from 622, when the faith is established, until 1924, there is this one form of another, of this persona that speaks of the unity of this faith and of its role in the world. And when it is being abolished, um, the, uh, those who begin to claim it are not claiming it as one institution institution is discontinued, almost like, you know, as if you would uh, abolish uh, um, the Vatican today, as if you would retire the Pope and say, that's it. What does that mean? What would such a process start? One of the things in which it started is micro-projects to reclaim spiritualism and reclaim the faith. And probably the most famous and successful movements that do that immediately after the abolition of the caliphate is the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to imagine the emergence of the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood as such a successful force um, um, has the caliphate not been abolished. So... Um, that's only one example, um, but one can actually uh, take it one step forward and think about the crisis of, of official Islam in the 20th century more broadly and the various projects and splinter groups and the fact that 
There is no institution anymore that defines it. There's no one practice that defines it. It's in a, it became a contested faith um, that anybody can is free to reinvent. And it's being reinvented in the form of Islamic fundamentalism in the 50s and 60s. Had we had the caliphate, that would have been very difficult to do. Um, and more recently, it's been once again reframed in the form of ISIS, which again is an attempt to marry uh, spiritualism with sovereignty, with uh, 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 political sovereignty, which in, in and of itself is an 18th century European value. Right. Uh, so that goes to show you what kind of hybrid you know, uh, formulations we've inherited a century um, later. Uh, Mary, earlier you mentioned uh, the sort of uh, impact of the Russian Revolution on the Balkans um, and the fact that there were communist parties and, and partisans and, and uh, um, participation in, in Ukraine from Bulgaria. Was that something that continued on as the Russian Revolution sort of crystallized and the USSR emerges? Um. Yes. I mean, you have a pretty influential left in swaths of the Balkans, for sure. Um, certainly Bulgaria and what came to be called Yugoslavia. Um, but there were all kinds of left movements. Like, not all of them were strictly communist parties that were pro-Bolshevik or pro-USSR. You had all kind of stripes of leftist movements. But there was really, I think, what I would call kind of these culture wars that became political going on across the region as well, in which um, the the left was really driven underground. Um, but I would say even so, they were driven underground politically, they were driven abroad, their organizations were shut down, they faced all these kind of difficulties. And what you have really throughout the region is um, right-wing regimes establishing themselves mm -hmm. in power. Part of that had to do with the fascist model that seemed really attractive in, in as early as 1922. You have fascism in Italy. Um, but also trade directly with Germany and Italy that kind of made those relationships geopolitically kind of made sense for regimes to orient themselves that way, I guess you could say. But I think both on the right and the left, this was just something that I thought I wanted to also mention for this period, is that you have a real, in a way, consensus, even among this culture war, about the failure of democracy and capitalism to be efficient and um, systems for these new states. I mean, democracy, nothing was getting done. There were assassinations between political parties. There were shootouts in parliaments. I mean, democracy looked like a total failure compared to what was going on both in the fascist states and in the Soviet Union, in Stalinist Russia. Um, but similarly, capitalism seemed to be a total failure. The economy was basically in a tailspin, kind of in a roller coaster up and down even before the Great Depression. After, it became even worse. Mm -hmm. And so for those states, these were models that didn't seem to work or didn't work for them. But they could also see that they really weren't working in their mind elsewhere in the world. Um, but And so that really sets the stage, I think, for not just 
these countries entering into World War II, many of the most of them on the, the Axis side, but also I would I would argue for what came after World War II. That is to say, there wasn't a vibrant model of democracy and capitalism ever having really worked in this region. Um, and so that kind of set the stage for, for at least a segment of elites to be open to new kinds of models like communism. So that's my flash forward. It's very similar, actually, <laughs> in the Arabist uh, from the 20s onwards. Um, the liberal, so-called liberal nation state, and that is the, the model that everybody adopts. And it's the longest experiment in the Arab world with democracy, 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way to the 50s. Um, free elections, free press, the various liberal uh, rights are guaranteed constitutionally. And um, even though it looks very promising, it's dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional democracy that gave bad name for um, liberal structures for, for being ineffective. And it's interesting, you know, Mary relates to the story of right and left, that this is this becomes a story. It's a little bit different in the Arab world, but we weren't been talking about right and left in the 19th century. So it's also after World War One that that becomes kind of the default for arranging, for arranging politics, for arranging uh, uh, um, the effort to negotiate and solve everything. And as it was in Europe at the time, political violence was part of the recipe. So you solve um, disputes uh, by violence precisely because the public sphere, the the public sphere that's supposed to solve conflicts through conversation uh, does not function very well. So politics go to the street. And in the end, the first generation of cadets in military uh, academies patriots, they do look to models that they see in Europe, in Italy, in Germany, as more effective, uh, more authoritarian, which is a good thing, especially in a patriarchal culture. Um, and the result is that they're ready to take, to take uh, over and retire um, liberalism. And the amazing thing is that the middle class that fought for constitutional liberalism since the late 19th century is happy to give up. They're happy to transition to authority and structures. They're happy to experiment with them. And they realize how disastrous it is only in the 60s. When, and when they realize it, they share the same prison cells as the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. So they realize it from below. Right. And of course, now we're back at the point where you have power has gone back to the streets or did briefly. A few years and ago. And hijacked again by, especially in Egypt, by the army or uh, in Syria, it's still open, but it appears again uh, a, sec a militarized sectarian state with a very narrow focus and, uh, and, 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 a, and a ruthless modus operandi. Yeah. yeah, I would say in Southeastern Europe, we instead we see the model of kind of a mafia um, oligarchy. Um, since the collapse of communism, though, similarly, you know, we've gone through a different kind of phases of history, of course, in Southeastern Europe, but um, there was this a lot of hope that, again, democracy and capitalism might be the answer if we break free of this communist model. And that has not shown itself to be the case. I think throughout the region, people have seen capitalism to be brutal. 
they've seen democracy to be ineffectual. Um, and they've seen these uber-rich, you know, sort of oligarchs coming to power, much like in Russia and Ukraine and other places, um, in ways that, you know, just a sort of brute power associated with money. Whereas the securities, at least, that people had under communism are gone. And there's massive brain drain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of a bleak picture. A lot of people's hopes, even those that entered the EU, they had hopes for that entering the EU would solve some of their problems. But actually, in, a, in certain respects, they've made them worse. The brain drain is more intense. Um, the economic, I mean, I won't even go into all the economic relationships, but there's a real sense of bitterness. The economies are in a really bad place in most of southeastern Europe. Yeah. Um, so anyway, kind of a digression. You can cut that out if you want. But No, I, I think it also <laughs> matches that. I mean, if you look at Turkey, for example, you know, um, 15 years ago, you know, the economy was booming. It was sort of the, the, the darling and very optimistic. And now uh, at this point, it's it's in the same situation. You know, the lira has devalued by quite a bit, you know, in the last couple of years. It's and 30, 40 percent. You know, um, there's... Uh, concerns about growing authoritarianism with the governments again. So, you know, it seems to be a, a trend throughout the region. Yeah, and going back to the nation-state model that we've been talking about, I mean, these borders, I mean, ever since borders were drawn in the 19th century for the new emerging autonomous and then independent states, the populations were so mixed that the only way really nation states could emerge was through massive refugee movements. Mm-hmm. Bulgaria was also involved in the, um, a lot of people don't know this, in the population exchanges that went on between Greece and Turkey. They kind of jumped into the game and they were pushing out Turks and Greeks and bringing back in Bulgarians from Thrace. They were part of that. But it's just been, I mean, really the Yugoslav wars in the 1990s were mm-hmm. a continuation of this in a way. Because really it was these multinational states like Yugoslavia that, I mean, you can say these borders made no sense and were drawn from the outside. But actually in that case, I think they made a certain sense because it was so diverse there. It was almost like a proto-Ottoman empire. You know, you have another multinational state in which you can kind of balance. You know, you don't have to unmix these populations. But then again, we saw that eventually that's precisely what happened in the 90s. But it's not a complete process. No. Uh, <laughs> there's still lots of populations that are, you know, sort of bitter about the borders as they're drawn now. And um, lots of major, pop, you know, mixing of populations. So. And make sure the country has the right name. or Right, that kind of. <laughs> exactly. Um, excellent. Well, um, any last comments you want to make? Yeah, maybe just the point again that um, it appears and that's the consensus in the region for the most part that World War I created a region that is politically unfeasible. Uh, not only artificial, but actually have no prospects for coexisting and living at peace uh, with the world. Which always in the end invites uh, um, foreign actors to try to arrange it in one way uh, or another. And when foreign intervention comes, the question is, who is going to pay? How is it going to be paid? And um, almost always the question is, who is, to contr- who is g- going to control the oil? Right. And um, 
you know that's uh, that's a long legacy, not only of World War One. Uh, it's it's a legacy of of the interaction between the Arabists and and Europe since the late 18th century. But um, it's quite amazing to see, you know, how much we haven't gone very far. The same dynamics you've seen today, you can look at them a century before, different actors, different intensity, different resources, but the same game. I mean, I guess I'm not so much... Hmm. I mean, for the Balkans, I think one thing that's important to understand is that those borders that were drawn during World War One that it's taken a long time, but... In Yugoslavia, at least, those were eventually undone. And one of the things, for example, Kosovo was given to Yugoslavia um, as a result of World War One. Actually, as a result of Balkan Wars, but then that was confirmed in World War One, and that's an issue that still Kosovo still isn't recognized by many of the EU states. That, I mean, it's been resolved in the sense that they have independence. It's just not widely recognized. So some of those issues have taken a long time mm-hmm. to work out. Um, if you think Yugoslavia was an artificial state, which I said it solved many problems, but then it created others, it's taken a long time for that to be worked out. And as I, as I mentioned, I don't think it's entirely resolved that Bosnia is still a very artificial, odd configuration, the Federation of Bosnia. Um, but Bulgaria, for example, is also very bitter about its borders that were essentially drawn at least the last time, after World War One, and then confirmed after World War Two, And they will never give up the dream of getting back Macedonia and Thrace, which they feel was rightfully theirs. You know, mm. so, so really it does cast this kind of psychological shadow in many ways still over the Balkans after all these years. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. Uh, thanks to Mary Newberger and Joab de Capua for joining us. I'm Christopher Rose, and we will see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.